As many of you know, I am a big advocate of reading biographies and autobiographies. And this month, the Empowerment Zone is celebrating Black History Month. And in today's episode, we are centering the history of Black women by talking about our impactful leadership. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on Black and Brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Today, I am having a conversation with Dr. Sonia Ramsey, a professor of history and women's and gender studies and the director of women's and gender studies program at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte about her book, Bertha Maxwell Roddy, a modern day race woman and the power of black leadership. There are so few biographies about Black women, so I am quite pleased to feature this book and to learn so much about the leadership and impact of Dr. Maxwell Roddy. Enjoy our conversation and see show notes for more information about Dr. Ramsey and how to purchase her new book. As always, please subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast. Also, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Today, I am excited that I have Dr. Sonia Ramsey of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is a professor in the Department of History and one of my colleagues that I met when we were getting our PhDs at, in Texas. Uh, she and I crossed paths several times uh, at the Texas uh, Historical Texas State Historical Association, TSHA, as well as other uh, places that we cross paths and have become friends since. Uh, she has just uh, published a biography about Bertha Maxwell Roddy, and I'm excited today to be able to discuss with her her book. So um, before we begin, of course, I always like to get the background of the individual, and I would love to hear more about her personal background. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone, Dr. Uh, Ramsey. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Um, my, um, I would love to say thank you for having me on your show. Um, I My background is interesting. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and I did my first book on um, teachers in Nashville, Tennessee. And then I got this wonderful job in Texas, and I moved to Texas, and I was still working on my dissertation. And that's where I met Dr. Houston. So nice with the Texas historians. I got to hang out with them um, and, and learn from them. I'm so excited about Dr. Um, Houston's career trajectory, too. Um, so I finally finished that dissertation. And I ended up um, working in Texas for a while, but then I moved to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I actually have family in North Carolina, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to move. I just finished my first book, and I needed a second book, you know, publish or perish, that's, that's the world. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to think of a topic, and I went to this lecture they had at the university, the Bertha Maxwell Roddy Lecture, and that name had been very familiar to me. I have been um, a member of Delta, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta, but during my graduate school years, everything was 
so overwhelming. I'd not been as active as I should have been. So I'd been at this lecture and I'm sitting here and Dr. Dr. Maxwell Roddy walks in and all the Deltas, um, the young Deltas stand up. And I said, oh my goodness, I know who she is. She is the president of Delta Sigma <laughs> Theta. How could I not forget that? And I quickly stood up because um, that's what you're supposed to do. And I realized, why is she in Charlotte? What's going on? And I dug, I dug a little bit and I found she was the founder of the Africana Studies program there. So that's pretty neat because I am an educational historian um, and that's my background. And then I said, hmm, a little light bulb starts to go off. And then I realized she was co-founder of the Harvey, of the Afro-American Cultural Center um, with Dr. Mary Harper. And now it's a, the Harvey B. Gantt Center here in Charlotte. If you're ever in Charlotte, you would want to visit. It's a great regional arts institution. Um, she also, backtracking, was the first, one of the first Black women to be a principal of a white elementary school during the busing crisis in Charlotte and all the desegregation things going on. And she actually became the, the president of Delta Sigma Theta, um, also founding the National Council of Black Studies. I said, are you? What? It's like my <laughs> subject fell into my lap. So I proceeded to work on this um, um, fabulous journey of writing this biography of Dr. Maxwell Roddy, who is still still around. Um, and she's had some health challenges, but she would try to be on this podcast herself if she was here. Um, but very dynamic person being around that aura of leadership. Wow, what a... <laughs> Wow, what a way to get your next topic, right? <laughs> to find out all of that information and and, uh, and to find all about the legacies she has created in the community and the nation when you look at the National Council of Black Studies, uh, which I'm sure, I mean, I know I've been involved in it at one point in my uh, career and just looking at the impact she's made nationally as well, as well with her service and being uh, the president of uh, Delta Sigma Theta uh, Incorporated, which yes. is a uh, black national black sorority. Yes. And one of the reasons um, I thought she was a perfect subject is that I've been waiting, looking to look at the activism of educational activism among women um, after the marches, after the civil rights movements died down. And I didn't think there was much scholarship on that area because they they were the first to open the doors, but they, they held the doors open for our generation and further generations to come through. And um, they helped build structures and institutions that sustain desegregation, um, integration in schools and things. So I thought she was a perfect um, subject to think about things after the marches died down. So what were women doing? So and bring that to light. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point of how important it is for us to acknowledge the roles and the leadership uh, that women have played in our community. So many times we're not acknowledged. Uh, our institution building work is not recognized. Uh, our leadership is undermined. And so, and plus on top of that, um, it's great to have a biography written about a black woman because there are so few. Yeah. So you uh, fulfilled a lot of responsibilities in your work. Yes, I'm very excited about, about the book. One of the things I wanted to also 
stress with the book is to look at the idea of um, who's an activist. And we have this kind of preset notion of an activist and they are um, maybe a Black Lives Matter activist, a young a young person, but activists come all in all ages. Um, they come in different, um, activists may not look like you. You don't know who an activist is. And I wanted to strive that Dr. Roddy's work was in get indeed activism um, when she was sitting at the table. So if you're invited to the table, how do you make it um, a functional um, process for the people coming after you? How do you make it um, the process is better for students? And so doing that work was not always easy and negotiating, using her skills to negotiate or, or her skills to confront people, having to know when you do that was a gift that she has. She has, I, I called in the book, kind of this pro, um, pragmatic likability. She's a very charismatic person. She's very likable, but she also was able to be, she's also so authentic that when she did tell people what they needed to do, they listened. Um, and so that's an interesting balance, the women of that generation. She was born in 1930, and I'm talking about the 70s and 80s, were able to do, they were able to negotiate with people who very different political views or opinions um, and get things done. And I think sometimes today we're very polarized and we need to draw on some of the skills that the people, women like Dr. Roddy had who were able to transverse these kind of boundaries to get what they needed to get done. So. I like the way you redefined activism because our perception in many of our minds is of activists are people who are out in the streets and protesting, but activists are also at the table, right? As you have uh, shown through uh, Dr. Uh, Maxwell Roddy and the fact that the skills that she, she, she honed in on her leadership skills to be effective at, as an activist by being pragmatic, as you stated, strategic, and authentic so that she was able to uh, make some effective changes uh, that probably could not have been done had she not had those skills. Yes, the the um the great James Stewart, who um James I'm um, Turner, who recently passed away, um the um pioneer in Afro American studies, um he coined that Dr. Maxwell Roddy was a modern day was uh, a race woman like Rosa Parks and people, and I wanted to revitalize that term. Uh, you know, it's a turn of the century term used by members of the Black press and activists to describe people like Ida B. Wells Barnett or Mary Church Terrell, who dedicated their careers, their civic lives to um, the empowerment of Black people or uh, Black women. And I thought that is exactly what Dr. Roddy has done her career as an educational activist and, and um, proponent of um, student success, her civic duties, her service work in the sorority of uh, Delta Sigma Theta is uh, uh, all for the race, all for the race. She's a modern day race woman and we have them all around us, but they aren't called activists. They're not deemed things, but they are doing things to empower and support and uplift and so, you know, in, in, in make the race better, make things better. Um, they could have had financial gain in different places, but they're working in our nonprofits and our service things to help make the race better. And I think as historians, we um, it's time to start acknowledging that. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, when you look at the term race, men and women, it's usually referred to, as you stated, of times gone by, right? And not really bringing it up to date. But a lot of people who currently are in leadership positions are race men and women, right? Yeah. And I always say, I'm. people always ask me about my background. I always say I'm a product of race men and women who felt that what you do should represent the race, 
and also uplift the race that Mm -hmm. anything that you do can either uh, bring a good reputation or create a bad reputation because you are a component of the race and um it's um it's interesting to hear how james turner uh defined her as a modern uh um modern race woman and using really redefining that term to to bring it where we can actually define people who are working today whether they're working within an african american institution or working in government or corporate America or in the nonprofit sector, they're still about uplifting the race. So um, in your book, the title of your book is Bertha Maxwell Roddy, A Modern Day Race Woman and the Power of Black Leadership. If you could sum up your book, what are are some of the uh, key takeaways or how would you summarize this, uh, this book of yours and why people should read it? I think it's a book that explains the activism of African-American women um, after the civil rights movements kind of died down a bit or transformed. They were they now had all these um, gains from the civil rights and the women's movement. But how did they act on them? And Bertha Maxwell Roddy used her um, abilities as an educational activist, her talent as an administrator to help build and construct and become a pioneer in the field of Black. Um, the academic field of Black studies by creating structures like in organizations like the National Council for Black Studies. Um, she also was a desegregation activist and local activist in Charlotte when she worked to help desegregate the schools by becoming the, one of the first Black women um, principals of a white elementary school. But she also, within that, she had become... Um, cordial um, associates with the power structure, educational power structure. So she could she could advise them, this is how this school is going to be. This is what I'm going to do to try to empower things for other African-American educators. She also fought to maintain some of her black teaching staff, which so many, so many black teachers and principals lost their jobs during this process. She also became an academic pioneer by co-found by founding the founding director of the Black Studies program. But in that she built structures, um, orientation programs, um, structures for service learning that now are very common structures at all universities. So this book also looks at the legacy of African American studies beyond just um, an academic program, how they help to build cultural institutions. And also looking at her legacy within Charlotte as she helped to co-found the um, Afro-American Cultural Center to help um, remedy some of the problems of um, the children are facing when all their neighborhoods are disappearing with oral uh, urban renewal and their schools are closing because of desegregation plans. How do you keep this cultural access for children going in the community? And looking at the book also looks at the um, um, growth of the Black middle class in Charlotte as you have reverse migration coming and the Afro-American Cultural Center becomes a lens for looking at how um, how the Black middle class were coming from all over to work at um, Charlotte because now it's one of the largest banking centers in the world and to deal with um, the original mission of having this program, grassroots program for children. So how do, how do cultural centers and museums balance that, that, that class issues within the Black community? Um, the book also takes a turn and looks at the journey uh, Dr. Roddy makes as an initial a Gamma Lambda sorority of Delta Sigma Theta to um, maneuver her way and climb and rise to become the national president. She calls herself a reluctant leader. So looking at the inner politics of African-American sororities, which are significant parts of the African-American community that has not been discussed in large detail, um, to look at the very dedication 
and these women had to service, um, and also the the political moves they made. It was um, looking at, at them as being politicians before they had access to political office, and to also look at even afterwards how this trained them to go into political office. The Dr. Roddy's vice president, um, Marsha Fudge, is now secretary um, later, who became president after her, is now um, you know health and human you know housing director. So looking at that um, leadership and their often their work in voting campaigns and things. So looking, I wanted to kind of bring much more awareness to the service role of African American sororities. So, um, and uh, also educate people who are not in sororities what they do. So trying to dispel some of the stereotypes that are have people have about sororities in general. So all of that on the national level, the local level, also bringing light to um, the educational activists um, in her, um, and within academia and the public schools. Um, I wanted to just shed light on these people, um, on people like Dr. Roddy, so we can all think about the people we have in our own cities that are like Dr. Roddy. But she a unique um, individual uh, looking at the R of leadership. Um, some of her famous phrases are it's better to ask forgiveness than permission and how, <laughs> how she forged ahead at this new university to get things done when people really didn't even know what Black Studies was. So she had to do that, not just form a program um, but also things. And she was the only second Black faculty member at the university. So um, so just the, looking at what it means to be a first. To me, a first is a great thing. We still don't know enough about about people are first, but that's not our whole story. They have to talk about what they did during their time as first and how they kept that door open so they wouldn't be the last. And Dr. Roddy's entire book is about um, her keeping that door open and, and how does she bring people in so she would not be the last? How does she build institutions so she would not be the last? Yeah. It, wow. I mean, you covered so much in terms of her impact uh, in, in this book, you know, from the local level, as you stated, to the national level, from local organizations to national organizations, to the building of cultural institutions uh, and um, organizations within the African-American community. So we know that she was a powerful leader. So can you talk a little bit about leadership. And as you know, as it is so today, women have, and Black women in particular, have a much harder time in leadership positions. Can you talk about her and her approach to leadership? Yes, I think her leadership philosophy began as when formed when she was a child. She grew up in a very small town, Seneca, South Carolina, in the Piedmont area of South Carolina. And actually, my mother's family grew up there too. That's why I also feel like I was destined to write this book. Um, but we did not, you know, know it's interesting. Um, but she grew up with a single mother and she grew up living with her grandparents. So although she grew up in, in poverty, she would live next door to, not no, a little walking distance to um, at Seneca Institute, a, a private black junior college. So she saw the college students walking by and they would take her to get candy. Um, and so she saw that also. So she grew up, she had that mentorship. She also saw the wisdom from her grandmother who could not read, but taught her so many things. So she learned how that people could grant wisdom no matter who they were, whether they were CEOs or people who worked in her, you know, 
cleaning up the building. So she doesn't does not have that delineation. She also knew how to build allies, even if it was just one ally, to build allies. Um, and allies didn't have to look like her or be like her. They just had to support her vision. And she has the ability to make people um support her vision, even though that's not their job and it's beyond their, you know, capabilities. They will just dedicate themselves to her um day and night, helping to form the National Council of Black Studies, um, going helping her in the sorority. They actually call themselves Bertha's girls. So how to build, how to get people to buy into your vision. She knew how to do that. Um, she also knew the ability to negotiate when she needed to or leave if she had to. And so in some situations she had to leave and other things she had to no negotiate. She also learned need when you had to confront people as well. And the ability to know when and where to do that. Um, she definitely had that gift of leadership. Um, one aspect about her leadership I see with other women's leadership is that she often stepped back um, to enable the organization to succeed. So in an example, in the National Council for Black Studies, she would offer when um, one of the young activists wanted to be a director, she, you can be the director, but let, can we have the um, conference at your uh, college? So she knew she would step back if necessary um, to let others lead um, if that's what they wanted to role. So she didn't have the ego where I had to, I had to lead. And I think sometimes that with women's leadership, she um, does not um, boast enough about herself as her leadership. And she said, oh, I, I didn't, I never really wanted to hold office, but she definitely did the things she had to do to hold office <laughs> in other areas. And I find that's common. Women women want to downplay their role as leaders instead of saying, I'm the greatest leader in the world. Um, they don't they do not do that. And I think male leaders might do that more often. Um, but so as historians and scholars, we have to know how to look through that a bit to see the leadership, even though they actually will try to deny their talents as a leader. But it will come out. I mean, as a young girl, she was president of the Southern Negro Youth Congress chapter. I mean, throughout her life, she has been in leadership roles. And so, and I think, um, I think that's an interesting dynamic to play when we look at women's leadership, um, that we've been trained as women to be more, to step back. It's not ladylike to be boastful and brag about your skills, um, but she should and, and other people do. So um, that's an interesting aspect to try to look through that and around that to see. She will not say her legacy. I don't have a legacy, but she has literally institutions because of her work. That is a legacy. Um, so that's an interesting aspect about um, women's leadership. I think today we can learn a lot of things about being innovative and dynamic. Um, if you think you have a great idea, you don't always have to ask everybody for their permission. Um, some people are not supportive. To find the key people that will support you and overlook the, you know, work around that. Um, instead of sometimes we dwell on the person that said no to us, keep going till you find the person that will say yes to you. Or look into things. When she had a problem wanting to do her um, PhD at the University of South Carolina in the 70s, they didn't have a PhD in Afri African-American studies. They didn't know what it was. And so she had to find a university, an innovative university union um, institute that did your own kind of build your own doctoral program. And she did that. And she brought several of the Black faculty at the university to get their doctoral degrees there. So look for um, another avenue if that avenue isn't working. Um, and that's what I've seen. If something wasn't working, she she looked around and one of the reasons she actually ran for office was to remedy or correct things she thought that was wrong so instead of sitting around and complaining about things what people can often do including myself she goes and runs for office to change it so <laughs> so that's a type of activism I think and I think um as younger people definitely are trying to do that engage in politics engage running for office if you want to change things run for um 
get an administrative job at a university or a job where you can enact change. Because if you don't have the power to act change, you really can't get them done. So some of this, one of the things she wanted to do was change things. And she had to work through that to do that. Um, also, the sacrifice that she made within her family life sometimes or other things, but also the gain she made in mentorship. One thing is she does not delineate between people of who their stature is and their status or their age. Um, she had a young student um, help run um, the festival that led up to the Afro-American Cultural Center. She's a young student who liked art. Um, and now she's a curator at the Smithsonian. So if you can identify a spark of talent or leadership in a person, ask them. It doesn't matter their age. They might be a student. They say, I, I have to work on that because I have to move that. But she did not have those pre, you know, preset notions about who, who has leadership skills or who has talent. Um, she you, she would get that talent to help her help her in her cause. So um, one of her colleagues was a white woman named Ann Carver and a male named um, Herman Thomas. Usually she navigated gender boundaries um, and she had, Ann Thomas would just go tell all the other faculty what Black Studies was and so much and um, so much that they said, can we have Bertha talk to us instead of Ann? Ann's too much, you know. <laughs> she was so dedicated to the cause. Having been able to um, get people to do that is because you're authentic. They believe in your cause. So the, I, some people say, you need to just say what you need to say and do what you need to do. She wasn't like that. She's like, you're going to be yourself and tell the truth about things. And that's when people will support your cause because they know it's the right one. So, Yes, authenticity is so important in leadership. Um, that's one of the skills that or, or talents that people don't really recognize. Um, oh, one last thing. Um, yes. Always be prepared. Know the rules of your organization. Mm -hmm. Know um, the structure. Mm -hmm. Know who, um, ha know what leaders, the person to go to for what, mm -hmm. because um, in that way, she had a strength when she was challenged. She said, well, this is the rule for this and that. Mm -hmm. And she had, they had to adhere to their own rules sometimes. So that's another good thing. If you're interested in leadership, um, you must be prepared. You must, you can't just wing it sometimes. You must know things with other people are, are already prepared that might want to keep you from getting where you want to go. So you need to be prepared. So Good thing. point. Yeah. Thanks for adding uh, that in, in her list of leadership skills. Mm -hmm. So when you look at her impact and effectiveness at, in, in leadership, as you mentioned before, you can't talk about doc, um, Dr. Bertha Maxwell Roddy without talking about Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. So can you tell us about uh her presidency and her impact and what are some of what are what is the legacy that she has left uh, with DST and for our audience Delta Sigma Theta is one of the divine nine uh, one of the uh, sororities within the African-American community uh, as um, Dr. Ramsey has stated uh, sororities and fraternities do have an incredible impact in the African-American community. So can you talk about Dr. Bertha Maxwell Roddy and her role in Death with Sigma Theta uh, Incorporated? 
yes. First, I wanted to explain to people not familiar with um, Black sororities and fraternities as that they are really service organizations that continue well after you graduate from college. So actually, the more of your work, the bulk of your work is after you graduate. So just knowing that. So by um, Dr. Roddy had become president and uh, Delta Sigma Theta is a, um, a organization that has about 300,000 300, active members um, in the United States and internationally. So this was a big deal. Um, and so she had to have a service platform. Um, you, the Delta Sigma Theta is a public service organization. So she had to have a service platform. And um, her, she had noticed that so many um, women, uh, people, African-Americans, especially women, had a hard time finding proper housing, affordable housing. And um, they were being subjected to the subprime mortgage industry and all these things were going on. And she wanted to do something to help provide housing. So she devised this innovative idea of partnering with Habitat for Humanity. Habitat for Humanity is a nonprofit um, organization that helps people build houses. And it was run um, by, started by uh, Miller Fuller, um, Southern Minister. And actually that's Jimmy, Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter's organization, right? So she uh, partnered with them and to have the members of Delta Sigma Theta build houses. And when they announced that, I mean, those late, those ladies in their you know, gowns at the convention, they're, we're going to actually pick up hammers and build. She's like, yes, she will. And one thing about leadership, in the sorority is that that's one area, one specific area where you can tell 300,000 women to do something and they go do it. They have to do it because you're their president. And some of them actually could not build the houses. So they worked on helping the um, homeowners have budgets and doing finances and things. So they went out and built houses. They built about 22 houses when she was in office, but they continued that service project. They built about five or 600 homes now and in, in Africa as well. One thing she did with Habitat, she said, by the chance, do you have any African-Americans on your board? They're like, no, well, let's get some on that board. By chance, do you have any people employed in your upper level? They're like, no. So like, by chance, can we? I'm going to give you this person to hire so she's also integrating Habitat for Humanity. So she's meeting with presidents, Carter and Clinton, and talking about Delta Sigma Theta um, and bringing uh, the awareness of the sorority outside. And it has a, pro a broad awareness, but bringing it to the community. And it was so empowering when these Black women were building these houses for Black women. You know, think about that. Um, and they could see that work um, because the, the people buying, getting the homes have to participate in the building of the homes too. So they're all working together, building the these homes and um, giving these single moms a lot of times a chance to have their families in a safe home and things. So safe environment in a home. So so that's from her biggest legacy with Habitat for Humanity. She also raised over during when she was president a million dollars for scholarships um, and other service programs and donations and worked with um, different um, programs like the NAACP and voting, but every president of Delta has their own kind of amazing agenda of service. Um, so she's in a long line of dynamic women. Many women um, like Dorothy Hyde, who's known for their civil rights, was also a president of Delta. And that's that's not, I, I'm boasting about Delta Sigma Theta, but that is evident. Um, all the other Black Greek authorities were all dynamic in their way. And one thing, they have these kind of rivalries, you think, but 
when I was told by things, what if there was just one? Think about the competition of service. They're doing more service when they're having these kind of uh, friendly rivalries um, because they're, they're you know, I, oh, you're going to work with this group. We're going to work with that group. So <laughs> gets more help than it was just one. So so that's the kind of fun thing about it. But um, they definitely um, want to make sure they address some of the needs, whether it's advocating for voting rights. And I think working together, she worked together with other sororities and fraternities to help um, do service in the community. Within this organization, she helped stabilize some of the structures, bringing all the skills, bringing her Africana studies, um, empowerment strategies of Mbutu, of servant leadership. I am because we are. And uh, she would bring in those African rituals to the sorority. Uh, so she's bringing in everything she's learned from all her different leadership skills. She was the first Black woman to get a master's in educational administration at UNC Greensboro. So she brought these management techniques with her um, into this and um, to some of the things. One other thing she did was a lot of times African-American people, we don't acknowledge, we know our history of Booker T. Washington or Martin Luther King, but we don't value our own local history in our local areas. We don't know if that is that history. You know, she was trying to get the chapters, the local chapters and each city, you have a, a local chapter and a collegiate chapter if the university's there to, to maintain their own records, build their own personal histories. And that's so important to historians because that's how we get the records to write about our stuff. If we don't have records, um, we can't write about it. And some of the members of larger communities say, well, there's no history. There's no evidence of that. It's all there. It's just probably in somebody's basement. So a lot of my research, you know, was getting that. And Dr. Roddy was very much about as a public historian, amateur public historian of helping the sorority build their history, their local history from the ground up. Um, so we'll have those those service records. And um, that's, that's a great thing because sometimes she actually had to educate them to record. You need to record your histories, um, to record our landmarks so we can have that. So there's a lot of different things, but yes. Well, she's definitely made an impact uh, on the sorority and uh, Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated, and you've expanded uh, on her legacy there. And so finally, I would like to switch gears to, uh, you had a great segment into my next question about writing the history. You are a historian and a professional historian and one of the things we do as historians is we refer to the archives. We somehow, sometimes the archives or the written word is more valued than the oral history, which I totally disagree with uh, because it can be distorted just like oral history mm -hmm. can, can be. So my question to you is how did you go about writing uh, this history um, in the last um and excuse me, how did you go about writing this history and what were some of the challenges that you had as a historian writing a history about a, a Black woman and um, any other information you would uh, provide for some of our upcoming historians? Yes. Um, one thing about writing a history of African-American women we have to consider is because of their status in society, archives, which are run by libraries and universities, may not have collected their history. So traditionally, as historians, one, you write about people who are no longer living. So if you're going to write about people who are living, that's another story. But two, um, you, there you go to the archives. So I did um, look at several different archival collections, but the main object of my history was talking to people through oral history. Um, and oral history is 
it's been around 40, 50 years now, but there's still this stigma about oral history and oral. And we are trained as historians to look at that idea of memory and distorting. You always try to back it up or have some co collaboration with written facts, but sometimes they're the only facts that you have. And so I had to work through that. And when you're writing with a living person, um, we're trained as oral history to kind of be more objective. But sometimes I had to take her to the drugstore. I had to take her with a group of students. And if I didn't, I would not have gotten this information that I needed. So I had to infuse some ethno ethnography techniques within. And I think we need to, um, dealing with this type of history, release some of our boundaries on what constrictions we have. Um, sometimes we have to go out of what we think historians should do to get what we need, to get the information we need. The biggest thing was establishing relationships with different people. People aren't just going to let you into their house and give you their archives. And we just think we just go to, go to their house. They don't know us. And in this day and time, they sure care, need to be careful. So it took a few years for me to get to the person who had a virtual archive in her basement of the sorority. Um, and so to do that, and once I did, I was able to get that information. So it often may take time. So, and to be diligent and things. And in some areas, I could not access the information. So I had to look through newspaper sources, different types of records to people who may have known that person to try to work, work around that. Um, one issue, another challenge is with this history, um, often it's thrown away because no, kill the, the garage, they had all those records from the 70s in there about grandma working in that club. That's that records are important, but they don't know. Educating your family about these records, um, educating people about the importance of African American records, and working with African American organizations to digitize their records. Now you just can take a picture of them, and you have them, so they don't have to stay in the box. For, so I think the 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 neat people, the very neat people, are the the bane of the existence for the historian. We need a cluttery person. We need the people that like to keep stuff. <laughs> I like don't throw away things, but at least take a picture of them. Um, at least take a picture of them. So I did the best I could with the evidence that I had. I wish I could have had more um, evidence, but um, and it was definitely feeling like a detective in some times or, or going to events I, I didn't really want to go to, but I needed to find that one person I needed to interview. Um, so, um, and then getting the approval of people. So it was a little bit of a negotiations, being a PR person, um, being a detective. Um, so if you are interested in doing recent history, um, that is what you have to do. And so you need not tell people, say, is that history? It is history. Um, we just have to expand our ideas of what historical research, drawing in ideas from sociology, ethnography, whatever we have to do to get this history, because it's there. So we, and that's our responsibility. So, yes. So, um, we all, I'm so happy you shared all that information because as scholars in African-American uh, history, we want to be more resourceful about how we go about writing our history and also educating our communities about the importance of preserving that history. Thank you so much for sharing that. So um, finally, what is your vision for this book? What do you want to accomplish? Uh, because I'm sure you had a vision when you started writing this history. What do you want your legacy to be as a historian through this book? 
Well, I one, I would hope people would read this and think about the roles, the different forms of activism that Black women have done, and um, to look in their look in their own communities for these women who are probably right there doing activism and start chronicling their histories and thinking about them as a historical figure of significance, right? Um, and two, I wanted to think about looking at the legacy of Black studies um, and this impact on developing universities, and as we talk about the quote desegregation university, Black studies programs had an integral role in preserving student support and courses and to look and revision our idea of what Black studies, not this little group of people doing Black stuff, but how they've impacted all students. Um, I want to look at the idea of the New South City, the cultural center. Atlanta was the main city and Charlotte's like wants to be in Atlanta in some ways. But what does that mean when you have this promotion of this progressiveness, but in, in within the city, there's still racism and um, systemic poverty and how do we deal with that? And to look at our African-American cultural institutions as they try to balance supporting um, the local students and local things and grassroots idea with also appealing to this new black middle class and looking at that and um, things. The other takeaway I like to think about is looking at Dr. Roddy's building of institutions, whether it was the National Council of Black Studies or the Gantt Center and women's roles as institution building builders. Um, when we think about women in the past who built Mary Clabethune, built schools, women in this era also building institutions as well. Um, and then also to look within the sorority to bring uh, more prominence to the sorority as a service, again, a service institution, but also look at the, the seriousness about these women and their political roles and what that means to be an office of a major women's organization, um, to look at that dynamics of leadership within the sorority and how they take that out in leadership skills without out into the community in the world. So I think um, to also to think about um, that you can be an activist in Black studies and you can be an activist in a ball gown at the debutante ball. <laughs> to, to know you can do that. There's no, you know, divine, you know, like these people over here and these people over there. You can do it all as Black women and Black women have done it all. So... So, um, Dr. Ramsey, I'm a big advocate for higher education, and I want to know you as a college professor, um, I know you have some great strategies you can share with our students to ensure that they're in, uh, successful in college. So could you tell us what college or colleges did you attend, your major and your degrees, and what strategy would you give students to ensure that they're successful in college? Yes, I attended Howard University as an undergrad and I was a journalism major. And I then after graduation, I found that wasn't for me. So you don't have to do what you major in. You can do whatever you want in your life, but you definitely have to have a plan to think about your plans can pivot. So I did my undergrad, I did my graduate work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, then I went to live in Texas and I started working actually before I finished my dissertation. That's where I met remote Dr. Houston. Um, so one thing I would say for college undergraduate students is um, most undergraduate students that I found, and I've been teaching a long time, is that they their student if they did not do well at school, it wasn't necessarily that the curriculum was too hard. It's because of personal issues. So I would I would tell them to get 
surround yourself with positive people, surround yourself with people who want to graduate, who want to win, who are not always looking for the way to cheat or get over. That might be okay for them. Some people do that, but that's not probably going to work for you. So get someone, um, get a group, a cadre of people who have success on their mind. They have a future for them. And also, if you get in a relationship that wants to impede your student success, that is not for you. Um, that person is not for you. That friend is not for you because you are on a mission and a goal to graduate. Um, and if, and you don't need to take care of people while you're in school. They have parents. They have other people. You need to graduate or find support services for that person. Don't get bogged down in the in the, the, the all this drama because you need to work at school to um, build a so, um, strategic plan for academic success. What teachers are you going to meet? One thing Dr. Roddy had a plan for her students. They sat in the front row or in the center and they always ask questions. Make your presence known in the classroom because they will know your face. They will write a letter for you. If they know your face and you are not doing well, they may co contact you and say, how can I help you and save you? If they don't know your face, they don't know you. So get you, make sure you know your teachers. Introduce, your te introduce yourself to your teachers. Sit in the front row in the middle so they can see you with their eyes if possible. To um, The other aspect is um, do your best to look at different things, different programs, internships, um, 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 leadership programs. Take advantage of the things at your university because that might be the way you network your way into a position as well. You help you create your own position. So other than the other area I would think um, would be is if you are not doing well, if you're overwhelmed, there are services to help you. This is the one time in your life where everybody is geared to help you. So you go to counseling, get your counseling. Somebody's paid for it. If not you get your um, go to someone to help your go to your advisor. That's kind of you help me um, navigate my classes. Go to your professors. Talk to your professor saying I'm having problems getting through this information. Take Make them teach you. Make them help you get through it. That's what they're there for. They're not there to give you A's for no reason. But if they see a student who is struggling, sometimes miraculously a grade can change, you know, because they see they see you working. So definitely do not feel isolated. There are people to support to help you. Um, if you can't find them at the university, find a friend at another university, form a group of fellow students where you are accountable to each other to write things. Have you done your paper? Have you done that? One thing for success when I'm at Howard, as I do, is not used to studying. I and really had no idea about it. And those guys said, we study from six to nine, and then we're going to the party. I said, what? And I had not said, I said, I did so well. I, I'm not used to that. Get good people are like that. You can have a social life, and you should, but don't let it dominate what you're there for. Because yeah, These conduct. are all great pieces of the, great pieces of, the, of advice, and I wouldn't expect anything less since you are a college professor. Um, make sure you sur surround yourself with positive and affirming people build a strategic plan for your success make sure you know your professors and introduce yourselves to your professors uh, get involved in experiential learning programs and also make sure you utilize the support services of your institution. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ramsey. You've been a great guest uh, and we always welcome you here to come back on the Empowerment Zone. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest. 